1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science,
2: a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rachel E. Walker to discuss her new book, Beauty and the Brain: The Science of Human Nature in Early America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Between the 1770s and 1860s, people across the globe relied on physiognomy and phrenology to evaluate human worth. Physiognomy refers to using facial features as an indication of an individual's character, while phrenology is a term for the study of the shape and size of the cranium as a measure of intelligence. Today, many dismiss these ideas as pseudoscience, but Dr. Walker argues these scientific approaches significantly shaped American society. She writes that they were pervasive social practices and intellectual philosophies that people used to better understand their own brains, bodies, and behaviors. Her book explores how these areas of study were once embraced by people of different backgrounds and political leanings. On the one hand, they were deployed to preserve social and political hierarchies. Science functioned as a tool of oppression. But physiognomy and phrenology were also creatively deployed by activists such as Frederick Douglass, Lucretia Mott, William Lloyd Garrison, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Margaret Fuller to fight for racial justice and gender equality. In her in-depth study of a largely ignored part of American history, Dr. Walker demonstrates how physiognomy and phrenology have shaped both science and our political landscape. Dr. Walker is an assistant professor of history at the University of Hartford, where she teaches courses on race, gender, science, and sexuality. Beauty and the Brain is her first book and was a finalist for the Organization of American Historians, Frederick Jackson Turner Prize. I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Rachel, I really enjoyed reading this book Uh, and before we dive into the material, I'm wondering how you came to write about this particular moment in time, your focus on science and particularly, you know, physiognomy and phrenology.
3: Yeah. So I went to graduate school as an early Americanist. So I always intended to study the period kind of in between the American Revolution and the Civil War. Um, But I also entered grad school as a specialist in gender studies. Uh, And I think... One of the truisms in gender studies, which won't be a surprise probably to any of your listeners, (laughs) is that, you know, gender is a social construct. It's not something that is just biologically imprinted on the human body. You know, there are, um, of course, people have material bodies. And, of course, when people walk down the street or encounter people, they're reading gender onto those human bodies. Um, But one of the big things about being a historian is that, like... (laughs) If you have a gender and a gender is constructed, then that also means it's historically constructed, right? So it's not, um, it's not the same in every single time period. So I was really inspired by the work of Thomas Laqueur, who um, published this kind of path-breaking book in the history of science and gender studies um, in the early 90s, I think. Uh, and he basically showed that not only is gender a social construct that changes over time, but also sex itself is a social construct that changes over time. Um, and so he shows in scientific research, in physician in the practice of physicians, that essentially over the course of the 18th century, there's a big shift in how people understand sexual difference and gender difference. So scientists go from thinking of women as essentially just anatomically inverted versions of men, uh, and and instead they begin kind of crafting this idea of gender complementarity. You know, so they view female and male brains and bodies. First of all, there's only two sexes, right? In this new scientific uh, conception, um, and there's no changeability between the two sexes and women and, and men are seen as kind of these distinctly different beings, both in brain and in body. Um, and so a lot of gender historians kind of just take that as a truism uh, and say like, okay, well, there's a shift in how people understand sex and gender. But I was always really interested. I'm like, okay, but how does that actually function, you know, on the ground when, when people not in scientific, not in elite scientific circles, not in elite um, physician circles, on the ground, ordinary people, how do people see gender? How do people conceptualize gender? Uh, and so that was really my question. I had no idea what physiognomy was and I had briefly heard of phrenology. I wasn't intending to study those sciences, um, but I thought I'd do it through a study of capital punishment. Cause I was like, where are people talking about bodies? You know. And so I initially started looking through court records um, and studying how people punish bodies. And kind of accidentally, I discovered this source in the archive that was more a kind of cultural studies source. I had run out of things to look at. And I just, you know, called called this other almanac up. Uh, and I found this super detailed description of a woman's body. Um, and the description, it was actually written by um, by Mason Locke Weems, who's the author of the famous, you know, George Washington cut down a cherry tree um, and couldn't tell a lie story. So he was like, you know what, for a proper Republican woman, you should never, ever view a woman based on her body alone. Beauty is not important. You should evaluate a woman based on her mind. And you can tell that a woman is smart, and intelligent and virtuous. By analyzing her physical features, so he goes through and kind of analyzes them, and I was like, "What is going on here?" Um, and only later did I did I realize that what he was essentially doing was a physiognomical description of this woman's body. Uh, so that after that kind of one source, I, uh, I <laughs> shifted gears entirely, started doing more secondary research, and then then my project developed developed the way it did.
2: What's fascinating about that is that. The focus on the non elite, the focus on people, is so present throughout this book. I mean, you begin the book with this 1949 illustration from Life magazine, uh, which is such an amazing visual. And it has this like highbrow, upper middle brow, lower middle brow, lowbrow activities. And it, it puts them in boxes from like wine to martinis to bourbon to beer. Um, and, and and you're trying to show that by 1949, you know, life is treating these terms as ones that any American buying the magazine would know, or you call them, quote, you know, abstract indicators of hazy cultural divides. But they're part of the common cultural lexicon. And then you're underlining that during the 18th and 19th centuries, these terms identified bodily traits that signified much deeper truths about human nature. Like you say, what is a Republican woman? What is a virtuous woman? And can we look at her face? So let, let's start by getting a handle on physiognomy and phrenology. So when did people begin looking at faces and skulls? Where did this start? Um And then we'll talk about like, you know, how, how it operated in the U S context.
3: Yeah, sure. So physiognomy is actually a discipline that stretches back hundreds, potentially, you know, um, even longer than that years. Uh, And it's not unique to Western culture either. Um, There's a long tradition of face reading um, in Asian cultures as well. Um, And so it's a discipline that kind of always exists. People are always kind of trying to discern personality traits from facial features or trying to discern at least if not personality traits, then trying to discern emotions. Um, But it's really not until the 1770s, when a Swiss reverend um, named Johann Caspar Lavater he publishes this huge four-volume treatise on physiognomy. Um, and he is not the per- first person to write a book um, or, <laughs> or several books about physiognomy, but he is the first to argue that, in fact, you can't, it's not just that you can read other people's faces in kind of this abstract artistic way. Um, he argues that physiognomy is an actual science in kind of this enlightenment mode, <laughs> and that if you learn the rules and you learn to do it properly, then you can actually read people's facial features with a degree degree of mathematical certainty. Uh, This is really interesting because he says that you can read faces with mathematical certainty, but in reality, he doesn't provide a mathematical system at all. I mean, his rules are basically all these volumes are just collections of him just Um, (laughs) he includes these these drawings of faces, um, and then he just reads the faces for the readers. There there is really no system for the most part, Um, but it is unique in that he insists that it can be a science, and this kind of inspires a lot of other scientific thinkers of the time to try and figure out the scientific rules of physiognomy. So after the 1770s, it starts to get translated into several languages, and it's really in the 1790s that physiognomy uh, moves to the United States and becomes a prevalent discipline within the context of the United States. And what about phrenology?
2: Is it all, is, is he connected with that or does that have its own um, history?
3: So he is not connected with phrenology, but phrenology is connected with him. Uh, phrenology comes a little bit later. Uh, so phrenology is, the system is envisioned by uh, this man um, named uh, Franz Joseph Gall. Uh, and he he essentially decides that physiognomy is not actually a scientific system. I think he correctly discerns that Lavater system, and he kind of complains about Lavater. You know, he's, he says he says this is science, but this isn't really science. Well, but he does kind of take for granted the idea that facial features reveal character. He has this kind of beautiful origin story about how he comes up with his science And it's actually what he's doing is physiognomy, not phrenology, which is the study of the skull. So he says that when he's looking around in his classroom as a young boy, he notices that all of the people with really large eyes have really good memories, which is a physiognomical assumption, right? And so he's like, well, maybe if I just go around and I kind of systematically write down what facial features, what skull shapes I see in the people that have XYZ traits, then, you know, maybe I can figure out which traits correlate to which person personality characteristics. Eventually, he comes up with this system um, in the late 18th and early 19th century uh, that says essentially the brain is divided into all these different parts and different parts of the brain control different aspects of the personality. So the front part of your brain, that indicates your intelligence. The back and kind of side parts of your brain, you know, the parts that are above your ears or at the nape of your neck, that those parts indicate your animal propensities. Uh, so that might be something like your sex drive or uh, how much you like to eat or um, whether or not you're going to be a good parent. Like, are you going to be, or are you going to be destructive? Are you going to be selfish? Kind of like all those things that make you an animal. Um, and then the top part of your brain, according to the phrenological system, the top part of your brain is what indicates your moral sentiments. So that is, are you a generous person, right? Are you a religious person, Are if not Religious? Are you spiritual? Um, So he kind of comes up with a system that helps people analyze the skull and the brain instead of just the face.
2: So in the book, you're so careful about uh, separating the two and when they occur and the rest. And I've kind of blurred it a little bit, but hopefully, I, I wanted listeners to just understand what the two approaches are, how they're related, and also how they're different. But
3: Let's- yeah, it's actually also okay for you to blurt a bit because I think that the reason why you blurt a bit and the reason why I blurred a bit is because 19th century Americans, by the time you get to the 1830s or so, people are not practicing physiognomy and phrenology separately. They are practicing them together. They are symbiotic disciplines. And people often will say that they're engaging in physiognomy when in reality they're analyzing the skull, or they say that they're engaging in phrenology when in fact they're just analyzing the face or forehead. So these are not separate disciplines. People are essentially using them together.
2: Oh, that's great.
3: Now, you say
2: in the book, and you've said here that physiognomy it you know, didn't begin in the colonies or the United States. Um, it, it, but it has some sort of unique resident, resonance in the United States. And I was wondering if you would unpack that a little bit. Like, why? Why does this impact people in the US so much more, it seems, than in Europe or in this particular way?
3: But it's also funny too, because phrenology in particular doesn't really start to become that popular in the United States until the 1830s and really it's being formulated as a system in the 1790s. Um, but it's particularly it's particularly resonant in the United States because there's something weird about phrenology in particular, but also physiognomy in that these disciplines are very flexible in terms of their ideologies. And so even though both systems say we have a set of rules for how you should read heads and faces, in reality, there's not that much of a clear system, and that gives individual people a lot of power. And in the United States, there's this kind of culture of individualism, like, I can do it, I can, I can go out in the world and, and go forth and, and be an individual actor and kind of, you know, <laughs> and shape my own destiny. Um, so these systems apply for appeal for that reason. Um, but phrenology in particular is a science that argues that every human being is improvable. And I think that this is kind of counterintuitive because when we talk about phrenology and physiognomy today, we often see these disciplines as being the forerunners to scientific racism, biological determinism, and eugenics. So we think of these disciplines as disciplines that say, actually, everyone has a different brain. Everyone has a different body. You are stuck in the brain and body that you were born into, and you cannot change that. Um, But in reality like that's true, these disciplines do kind of lay the framework for eugenics and biological determinism. But as they're being practiced in the 1830s and 1850s, most phrenologists in particular argue that in fact, you can change your brain and in the process, you can change your body. So if you want to have a more attractive forehead, then you just need to do really well at reading books or studying or practicing your intellectual pursuits. Because if you do, you're going to change the frontal lobe of your brain. And as the frontal lobe of your brain changes, it's going to push out on the skull in all of the right ways, you know. And as it pushes out on your skull, your brain is literally molding your skull from the inside out. So it's this idea that actually your body and your brain are in your control. And I think that that really aligns with this American culture of meritocracy, this American culture of individualism, the idea that kind of nothing is set in stone and you can be the shaper of your own destiny. Um, it, It appeals and particularly appeals to radical thinkers and kind of more progressive activists within the United States because it is a philosophy of the human mind that says, in fact, you are not stuck. You can change and and you have the power to change yourself and the power to change society more generally. One of the things I
2: loved about the book was just that insight of sort of shaking me. I remember being in college and reading The Mismeasures of Man by Stephen Jay Gould of like you know pouring the shot into the skulls and him demonstrating how it is that people in racist ways you know poured shot in thinking that that was objective, but in fact they got the results that they wanted from their quote unquote measurements. But Your book really gives so much more nuance to what's going on here, and this issue of how merit functions, I think, is just a a fabulous contribution to, to this book, because what we have is these Americans who don't want their merit from their bloodline, so they're rejecting aristocracy. But they need to figure out a different way to frame this, and so you know, how do they uh, justify their leadership in the these you know newly formed government? And this idea that it isn't just blood. You know, so, so like blood focuses, the body focuses in so many ways And ter- when we think about it in terms of aristocracy and this idea that you could change the shape of your head, it it just blew my mind to use an expression that I probably now need to rethink after reading your book. Um, and you talk about how, you know, these leaders, especially the, the leaders of the citizenry are like, are trying to justify th- to themselves that they're capable of, of this. And also that they're as good as the Europeans who are looking down upon them. You do a fantastic job of explaining that. And, and also going back to your constant theme in the book, ordinary people felt also were somehow affected by this. So this wasn't just like mental comfort, as you say, for society's most privileged members, there was something else going on um, as, as well. So I, I you know, I, is there, um, before we go on, is there anything more that you really see very specialized about, about why this appeals to, to the American culture in that particular moment, the earl of this? And it is a special time that you're writing out, you know, after the revolution, before the civil war.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so as you said, the American Revolution, part of the American Revolution is rejecting that British aristocratic idea that you can inherit your social position simply because of who your parents are. You know, Americans really want to believe that you should be Uh, you should be carving your own way out in the world. Of course, we know that in many ways, that's not true at all. You know, the people who are in charge in the United States are, are most often the people who are born into wealth. But it is comforting for people to say, look at the head of Benjamin Franklin, or look at the face of George Washington, or analyze the cranium of Daniel Webster, and be like, these men are our political leaders, but they are here because they are smarter and more virtuous and more competent than the rest of us, you know? And and so it's a a real comfort for the privileged and powerful to be like, of course, Daniel Webster has all of this political power. Have you looked at his forehead? Have you looked at his brow? Have you seen the size of his skull? Like, he's incredible, you know, he's brilliant and he's amazing and, and he is, he deserves his position of political leadership, not because he inherited it, but because his body dictated, his body and his brain dictated this kind of elevated station for him in life. But as you say, I mean, this is also a philosophy that appeals to ordinary people because there's this idea that like, hey, maybe I have an advanced... where i want to be in the world yet but that doesn't mean it's impossible you know anyone anyone can can do anything we can we can be whoever we want to be we can go wherever we want to go we can improve our bodies we can improve our brains all i have to do is focus myself on my education all i have to do is you know read a few more books and and i too can be a self-made man um, or woman right um and so there is this philosophy that kind of appeals to everyone of course in the end that even that philosophy of changeability appeals to the privileged and the powerful because it it enshrines this idea that if you haven't yet succeeded, then ultimately you have no one but yourself to blame. Because if everyone is capable of success, those who haven't succeeded are thus just people who haven't worked hard enough in order to do so. Um, so it's kind of this catch twenty two where it's like everyone's improvable, but if you haven't improved, then like what are you complaining about?
2: Well, and also in the book, you're very careful to say that when we talk Washington, Franklin and Webster, we aren't just talking about uh, more competent men or even more wealthy men. We're talking about white supremacy and we're talking about patriarchy. So uh, in this period, these sciences are used to lay out reasons for why it is that those particular men who are white and who are male do have these proper brains and, you know, beautiful visages. Um, I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about how it was deployed that way in this period.
3: Yeah, I mean, so the thing about physiognomy and phrenology is that they're fundamentally individual. So you're analyzing one person's face or head at a time. But there are all of these racial tropes and all of these gendered tropes that people are kind of silently, subtly deploying in the background. So, for instance, the issue with intelligence um, part of physiognomy, some of the thinkers who build off of physiognomy and are kind of circulating at the same time. Physiognomists begin arguing for the concept of the facial angle, for instance. Uh, so the facial angle, this is kind of hard to describe on a podcast, but if you were to turn, you know, your face and and as if it was in profile, and draw a straight line down from your forehead to your chin, and then a perpendicular line from your ear to your nose, and then measure the angle that those make. Uh, Scientific thinkers would argue that if you had a facial angle that was closer to 90 degrees, then that meant you were more intelligent. If you had a facial angle closer to 60 or 70 degrees, then you were less intelligent. And surprise, they just so happened to find that most white Americans had facial angles between 80 and 90 degrees. And most black Americans had facial angles between 70 and 80 degrees, which meant that they were supposedly right. This is all As you said with Gould earlier, right, people are are seeing what they want to see and finding what they want to find. But so there's kind of subtle ways in which they say, like, oh, that man has a retreating forehead. That's almost like a racialized epithet to say his facial angle is smaller and thus he is less intelligent. And these are critiques that are used often to critique black men and women with women, with white women, they kind of want to acknowledge that their wives and daughters are intelligent um, because otherwise they're, uh, it's like, well, they're living in the same homes, right? They're they're inhabiting the same social events. They're, they're doing all these things. So they kind of want to simultaneously acknowledge that women are intelligent, but at the same time, they want to say, well, it's a different sort of intelligence. Um, and so they would say like, you know, women can have really tall foreheads, which means they're really great perceivers. They're really witty. They can um, they can intuit emotions, right? They have these cognitive skills of being able to to be perceptive and and rational, of course. But you know, men have much broader foreheads, and in order to be a really deep thinker, you need a broad forehead because the broad forehead has permanence. You know, so all these kind of subtle ways in which, like a broad forehead, a retreating forehead, a high forehead, all of these things mean racialized and gendered. Uh, they have racialized and gendered meanings. So
2: I, I think you've touched on this, but let me just ask the question more directly. We're, you know, you use letters, for example, from Jane Addams, which I was just as sad about because, uh, you know, I like Jane Addams and I don't – I'm sorry, Abigail Addams, ugh, my bad uh, – uh, And, you know, it's, it's sort of creepy to read just how invested she is in, you know, your forehead and your face and these, I mean, she's not measuring angles, but she is, she's using some version of this. So, you know, were these practitioners trained? How did somebody like Abigail Adams become so, you know, comfortable? Like, so how many of the people were experts? How many of them were lay people, um, you know, how did they get this information, actually, so that it gets into the letters?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the really incredible things, really incredible insights that historians of science have given us since really about the, the 1980s or so is that the definition of science itself was a lot different in the 18th and 19th century the 18th and 19th centuries than we you know think of it today. So for us today, it was like if you call yourself a scientist, then you better have a biology degree or a chemistry degree or you know a degree in physics from an educational institution. But that's not the case in the 18th and 19th centuries. Scientific knowledge is much more porous. It's much more. Uh, um, the boundaries between what counts as science and what don't count as science, those are much murkier than they are today. And even in terms of physicians, you don't have necessarily physicians who have medical degrees always, you know, so the boundary between who is an expert and who is a real scientist and who is just a lay person, that same boundary doesn't exist. And a lot of scientific knowledge is not just happening in elite scientific journals or in elite Educational institutions. Scientific knowledge is spreading in newspapers and in magazines and in novels and in uh, these essays on physiognomy, for instance, which are in some ways taught in medical schools and in universities, but then they are also becoming bestsellers on a broad scale in the same way that, say, like the Twilight books would today, you know? (laughs) Um, So, scientific knowledge is this thing that's quite easily moving in between elite intellectual circles, educational institutions, and ordinary people on the street. I mean, even people in in pubs or <laughs> bars are accessing physiognomic and phrenological knowledge. So for me, it's not surprising at all that Abigail Adams would have read Lavater or that she would be using the lessons that she read in Lavater and then applying them to people like Benjamin Franklin and, and George Washington, because she is an educated woman of the time. And part of the way you show your status as an educated, refined culturally uh, sophisticated woman is by showing that you've read all of these recent books that everyone's talking about.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full nineties throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So there's a large body of work on the history of science. You do two things in this book. One, you don't call this pseudoscience, and I want you to explain why you don't call it pseudoscience. And also, You're trying to do something a little bit different than other, you know, quote unquote, historians of science. So can you just talk a little bit about how your work both overlaps and maybe diverges a little bit from history of science approaches and why you don't want to say pseudoscience, why you want to say science?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think for some reason, I still feel like a bit of a historian of science imposter uh, because my training is all in gender studies and in early American history. The conferences that I go to, the people that I network with, they're all in kind of that early American history community. And I am going to the History of Science Society meeting for the first time this upcoming year. So (laughs) there's a way in which I feel kind of uh, culturally separate from historians of science, but obviously have read. lot in that field because I accidentally landed on, on this topic. Um, but one of the, the really big insights that historians of science have given me, not just given me, but you know, given the world, uh, is that it's not always helpful to use the term pseudoscience when you're talking about disciplines that have since been discredited. Um, and that's because if you use the word pseudoscience, you're implying that it's fake science. That might be good because it makes you feel smarter and better and more sophisticated than people in the past, Uh, because, of course, I'm not making the argument that physiognomy and phrenology were legitimate sciences. Like, I'm not arguing that you can actually tell a person's character by analyzing their facial features or their skull shape. And yet, at the same time, just because I don't take it seriously as a science, that doesn't mean that early Americans didn't take it seriously as a science. And so if you kind of retroactively go in and just label it a pseudoscience, it allows you to burnish your ego a little bit by being like, oh, you know, we're so much smarter and better than people in the past. But at the same time, it causes you to fundamentally misunderstand the historical actors that you're trying to study because they didn't view physiognomy and phrenology as pseudosciences. That's not to say they didn't contest these sciences or that, you know, certain people didn't think that they were bunk or as they would have put it humbuggery, right? Like, you know, people did contest them. But there's a huge variety of people who take these sciences seriously. And if historical actors take them seriously, then I think we have to take them seriously as well.
2: No, I I loved that about the book. So these first two chapters really help us understand uh, how Americans used physiognomy to craft this kind of you know, idealized and exclusive vision of themselves as disinterested Republican citizens. Uh, you also talk about how phrenology helped shape the country's, you know, meritocratic ideals how, and and this flexibility that you, you've underlined. But by the time you get to chapter three, okay, which is called Character Detectives, I love the title, um, you're now focusing on how Black Americans and white women are using these very popular sciences for their own social and educational advancement. And I'd just like you to talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. One of the things that was most surprising to me in the course of doing the research for this book was that Black Americans and white women did not reject these disciplines. In fact, they embraced them often enthusiastically. Uh, And I first kind of discovered this in the archives when I was looking through um, the Anglo-African magazine, which is a black magazine, a black kind of, um, forgive my use of the term, highbrow magazine of the 1850s. (laughs) Um, And I was seeing all of this physiognomic and phrenological language. And I was like, why are black activists and intellectuals using this science? Because everything that I knew about physiognomy and phrenology is that these are problematic disciplines that lay the groundwork for discrimination. These are disciplines that encode ideas of white supremacy in science. These are disciplines that serve as the foundation for biological determinism. These are scientifically racist disciplines. I'm like, why are Black Americans embracing them? Uh, And then as as I kept kind of digging through the archives more and more and more, I'm like, it's not just the small subset of Black intellectuals who are using these sciences. It's ordinary women, black and white women. It's, um, you know, I I have newspaper evidence of, you know, a poor black teenager who decides that he's going to he's going to go off on his own and become a phrenological lecturer in order to (laughs) to make money. Uh, And he's kind of being praised for this choice. And so I think I I guess my major question of the, the whole second part of the book is like, why, you know, why are marginalized people, radical activists, abolitionists, women's rights activists, like why are they all embracing these sciences? And I think I kind of came to a few answers. The first thing is just that these sciences are are really accessible. And so it's scientific knowledge that is not blocked off for white women or for black Americans who for the most part are blocked from elite educational institutions during this time period. They can't go to college, they can't go to medical school for the most part, but what they can do is buy a physiognomical treatise. And if they can't afford a physiognomical treatise, then they can buy a phrenological almanac. And even if they can't afford a phrenological almanac, they can borrow a newspaper and see articles about physiognomy and phrenology. They can read physiognomic and phrenological language in novels. You know, they can access this knowledge on the streets. Phrenologists in particular, one of their big things is like, we need to make knowledge of human nature accessible to people. So they send traveling lectures all throughout the country to give ordinary people a little taste of phrenology they open phrenological workshops. So these are accessible systems. They're also flexible systems because there are no clear, coherent rules. That means that every individual person has the ability to interpret heads and faces however they want to interpret heads and faces. And so people, for instance, like Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they <laughs> it's very easy for them to say, yeah, of course, all of these famous phrenologists are racist or or sexist, or they're propagating these discriminatory ideas about the female brain or about um, Black Americans, but perhaps they're just not reading heads and faces correctly. Perhaps I could do it better, you know? <laughs> um, and that kind of gives them the opportunity to say, it's not the knowledge system that's wrong, it's the people who are practicing the knowledge system. And I think the third thing is what we've already been talking about, which is, uh phrenology and physiognomy are systems that are fundamentally predicated on the idea that all human beings are improvable and that you can change your brain and you can change your body in the process. And in addition to saying that all human brains are improvable, phrenologists in particular, they just hammer home again and again and again that there is this kind of universal quality that all humans share. All humans have the same brains. They have the same mental organs. They might have those mental organs in different proportions. They, it, that doesn't mean that everyone's brain is the exact same, but they are propagating this idea of universal human equality, at least in, in, in some parts, right? That doesn't mean they're not racist. It doesn't mean they're not sexist. Um, but it does mean that they present these adaptable disciplines that marginalized people can kind of latch onto and just use for their own purposes.
2: No, it's it's fascinating. That part of the book is just incredible, and it is most of the book. Just to be clear, you know to to listeners that the 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 first two chapters of a sort of establishing the background and where this comes from is really a small part of the book, and then the rest of the book is devoted to to this. And I, I do want to talk about uh, uh, since you started with an interest in. Uh, death the death penalty. Um, I want to come back to the chapter on uh, penitentiaries but but before I do like you mentioned uh, you know digging into archives you mentioned downloading, you've mentioned these almanacs w- what kinds of sources? you know do you use what kind of archives do you have to go to how much of it is online how much of it is in in boxes um and also if one comes to mind like is there a moment that you sort of found a source uh that really surprised you that made you rethink some of the assumptions that you had going into the research
3: yeah so i mean this book i got a little <laughs> aggressive with the the wide variety of sources that I wanted to use, because you can find lots of information. If you wanted to do just purely a cultural and intellectual history of physiognomy and phrenology, you could limit your sources to newspapers, magazines, and novels, and you could very easily do that. Um, But there was part of me that wasn't satisfied with that because I wanted to be like, well, sure, these ideas are circulating and they seem to be everywhere in the cultural and intellectual sphere, But are ordinary people adopting these disciplines and taking them into their own homes and their own lives and using them to interpret people on the ground? So I did a lot of research in in printed sources, but then I also did a lot of just digging in manuscript collections particularly for that chapter, Character Detectives, that you uh, were talking about earlier, I feel like this is, it was a constant struggle to not just scream in the book, like, do you know how many manuscript letters I had to decode, you know, (laughs) to make these claims? Um, Because I looked at, and some of these sources were printed, but I looked at, you know, about 180 different women's papers. That might be letters, that might mean journals, and obviously some collections are more extensive than others. Some of them have been transcribed, and other haven't, but I thought it was really important to look at women's personal writings and, and figure out how they, they're using these disciplines. Um, but I also looked at, you know, scientific treatises. I also spent a lot of time looking at beauty manuals because um, in one of my chapters, I, I go on this kind of tangent about how um, phrenology and physiognomy are shaping women's hairstyles. And so, you know, I wanted to look in, in beauty manuals and like, are they using physiognomic and phrenological language in those? And it turns out, yes, they are. Um, and also, I I mean, I used a lot of um, a lot of penitentiary records, uh, especially for that fifth chapter, because um, in penitentiaries they have what are called um, moral instructors. <laughs> um, at least they did in the Eastern State Penitentiary in in Philadelphia, and it was a moral instructor who would go into prisons and essentially try and determine. Are incarcerated people are, are are they capable of reform, um, or are they kind of hardened criminals that are destined to to be menaces to society? And so they would send these this man. He would go into each individual person's uh, cell, and he would analyze the heads and the faces of the prisoners that he was encountering. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I looked at a bunch of different types of sources because I really wanted to do a comprehensive cultural history and a, and a social history of how people are. Using these disciplines on the ground. Um, and it would have been easy to limit myself to only court records or only magazines or only novels or whatever. But I think if you, when you take them all together, it's kind of hard to ignore that these sciences are pervasive disciplines that are kind of filtering into every aspect of people's lives, even, even when people don't take them particularly seriously.
2: And to be clear, even though I asked the question, it is very clear every page, just how many things you have read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it can be lost on readers what it means to have to transcribe in addition to reading. Uh, way back, they were asking uh, uh, people to help with uh, translating, with transcribing Elizabeth Cady Stanton's letters. So like a couple of times at night, I'd sit there and I'm realizing, wow. I can't actually read her script very well, but there were other people who could. So I, you I know, I, I, it's kind of nice to have that that piece and to also understand. I, it 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 is so clear the way you presented in the book that this is based on many types of evidence uh, that you don't you know cherry pick one piece. This is this is never one piece. I mean, it's not one. Abigail Adams letter and it's not one magazine article. It's it you make it very, very clear how pervasive it is. And I I do a lot of reading recently on eugenics and also the sterilization efforts that have continued in the 1970s. And it is so interesting how even by 1970 and 1980, as people are sterilizing women, uh, black and brown, who they believe to not be the citizens that they want to have, that they they not only rely on this, but then when uh, social media, when the, the 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 people are able to respond, they use this. They they spout the kind of eugenics that you would hear in 1924, but they're using Twitter to do it. And I, and I think that really, for me, your book and the way you explain this relationship between pseudoscience and science was incredibly helpful for me to think this through, even though I'm thinking about the 20th century and you're not writing about the 20th century, that that these ideas don't just impact people in 1924 in 2023 americans are still walking around with these assumptions about eugenics that have not been entirely washed away and i and i think you're also showing that we we retain some of this as well Although it may not always, you know, we're still using the term highbrow. We haven't eliminated it from our vocabularies. And that's interesting. Um, you mentioned the chapter on uh, uh, um, penitentiaries and criminal, quote unquote, criminal minds. And I definitely would like uh, to for you to expand a little bit on it, especially since this is kind of where your interests lay before you even began the book. So tell us a little bit about how these sciences were used in thinking about prisoners and also, you know, who does wrong and who does right.
3: Yeah. And this is a, an arena in which I think that the particular time period that I am talking about becomes important because in the 1780s and 1790s in particular, There are major shifts in how Americans and and Europeans, too, are thinking about crime. This is when you have the emergence of penitentiaries, which obviously the penitentiary comes from the word penitent, right? Um, This is this idea that you can't, and this builds off the famous work of Foucault, um, where you can't just punish criminals publicly (laughs) um, in order to deter other people from um, committing crimes. What you need to do is you actually need to change people. And you need to change their hearts and minds and make them productive members of society. At least this is this kind of idea. So punishment, it's still punishment, but punishment goes from being outside public hangings and public whippings to being inside these penitentiaries where um, incarcerated people are supposed to undergo this type of reformation. And then when they ideally leave these penitentiaries, they are supposed to be virtuous and intelligent Republican citizens. And so one of the biggest concerns is, okay, is reformation possible? Are people actually capable of change? Or is there something sinister about incarcerated people that makes them fundamentally a danger to society? Um, Or is everyone capable of reformation and change? And so these moral instructors go into these penitentiaries to have individual conversations with incarcerated people. And as they're having these individual conversations, they're trying to figure out well, hey, is Bob capable of reform or is he not capable of reform? And this moral uh, instructor from Philadelphia, I mean, his journals were in some ways just hilarious because he would write things like, you know, he'd have an individual entry for each person. And then under one person's entry, he after criticizing them and telling them that uh, writing in his journal, it seemed like a drunkard, uh, he'd be like, no hope, (laughs) you know, like he would just write no hope underneath, like in the margins, kind of. Um, But other times in the margins, he would write capable of moral reformation or capable of MF or um, (laughs) M ref, you know. And so uh, he's essentially making his own decisions. And he's using physiognomy and phrenology to help him decide which of these people has goodness lurking within them and which people are are kind of fundamentally dangerous to society, Um, which seems so absurd from the the modern context. But at the time, if you're living in a culture where physiognomy and phrenology are taken quite seriously, um, then it makes perfect sense when you're trying to, you know, it's essentially the 19th century version of going in and doing psychological evaluations or mental health checkups on on, uh, incarcerated people, but just a lot more sinister
2: this book has consumed a lot of your time for many many years (laughs) it's
3: out uh it's it's
2: being looked at for awards people are paying attention to it um and we're thrilled to have you talking about it here today but what is what do we have to look forward to what is your are you thinking about your next project do you know what it is are you are you willing to share (laughs)
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a coherent project at this point because I just am kind of finishing up this one, but I do remain totally fascinated with the connection between science and power and how people use science to rationalize, justify, and sometimes challenge inequality. So for a second project, I'm thinking of doing this kind of broad scope, 200-year synthesis with case studies of progressive groups who embrace science uh, and use science to try to validate their belief in universal human equality. Um, so for instance, just like I show that there are Black intellectuals and uh, women's rights activists who embrace phrenology, there are also Black Americans who embrace eugenics, right? Um, and then... And even thinking more recently, if you think about the Born This Way mantra and how a lot of queer activists have embraced essentially a kind of biological determinist idea about human sexuality and are using that to advocate for social justice. Um, or for instance, um, the kind of feminist or leftist sociobiologists in the 1970s and 1980s, who are like, you know, the white men in our discipline are really sexist and, and they're biological determinists. And, and if only we could figure out a better way to do the science, we can we can do this better, right? So I think I'm just, I'm really fascinated by how much faith people put in science to prove the idea of human equality, um, which is, at least the way I see it, not actually a biological or anatomical concept at all, um, but a political concept and a social concept. Um, so I guess my question is, like, <laughs> why are we so invested in using science to validate this uh, political belief that we have. And what do we gain when we do that? Um, And what do we also lose when we do that? So I'm thinking like big broad scale projects stretching from water cure, activists in the 19th century to um, born this way, activists in the present. So we'll see how how much that narrows (laughs) in the coming years. Well,
2: I'm looking forward to that book. Uh, (laughs) And thank you so much for coming to discuss this book. Uh, I've been talking to Dr. Rachel Lee Walker about her new book, Beauty in the Brain, The Science of Human Nature in Early America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2022. Thanks so much, Rachel.
3: Thank you.